Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in Ram. My name is Preston Sprinkle. I'm the host for today's show and every show, really, because this is my podcast. And I named it Theology in Ram because we talk about raw stuff. Today is a very, very raw conversation with my good friend, Lisa Fields. If you don't know Lisa, then shame on you. You need to know Lisa. Lisa is an amazing um, communicator. She's a Christian apologist. She has a master's degree in theology from Liberty University and is um, just doing some amazing work among, especially among younger black Christians, helping them to engage God's word and helping them to answer um, really tough questions. Lisa had me on her podcast years ago, and we've been kind of friends from a distance ever since. And in this episode, we do talk about Black Lives Matter and the Gospel. I know that very phrase might be triggering, uh, confusing for some of you, and I hope you stay tuned because Lisa really unpacks the meaning of the phrase and how we should understand the relationship between the Black Lives Matter organization versus the movement versus just the phrase itself. Lisa speaks into our cultural moment with much grace and much truth. So I'm super excited for you to listen in on this conversation. Couple announcements. Okay, the first one's a big one. Uh, For the next few months, I'm going to say through the summer months, I am going to be doubling up on Theology in the Raw. I typically release a podcast every Monday, and I'm going to be doing it twice a week now. And part of it's because I've been having so many amazing conversations with people. I've got all of these uh, conversations, these files just stacking up. And I'm like, I want people to engage this content soon. Like, I don't want to record something in late May and then release it in like late November because I'm so backed up. So I'm going to start releasing two podcasts a week, every Monday and every Thursday. So I hope you can keep up. And I don't know about you, but I listen to several different podcasts. I subscribe to several podcasts and I don't, um, I can't make every episode. There's several podcasts that I really love that I still may only get to every second, third, fourth podcast that they put out. I just can't keep up with the content, but I do like the um, availability of various people and episodes. So I hope that you enjoy the extra content happening this month. If you would like to support this show, If you're like, man, Preston, you're doing a lot of great work, then you can go to patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. That's patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw and support the show for as little as five bucks a month to get access to premium content like once a month podcasts, once a month blogs, and just closer access to uh, me, to the theology in the raw community and all that jazz. So if you like, show, if you would like to support the show, that's patreon.com forward slash the Elden Raw. Um, so for, um, oh, also, yeah. So a lot of these episodes that I've been recording, they have been primarily YouTube conversations that I also want to release in the podcast. So you might hear references to uh, YouTube, you might hear me mention, you know, me holding up a book or something that you can't see because you're listening to the podcast. And I'm doing this because I know that there are people who love YouTube, but don't really listen to podcasts. There's people who listen to podcasts who don't really watch YouTube. Like it really is two different audiences. There is some overlap, but I'm trying to release content in both spheres to meet both different types of viewers or 
listeners. So I apologize to what I would consider probably a small percentage of you who maybe have already heard these conversations on YouTube, and now you are hearing them again on the podcast. Um, I think for the majority of you, you prefer one avenue over the other. So if you would like to watch this video, if you would like to see Lisa in person or all the other guests I'm going to have on, then you can go to my YouTube channel, uh, Press and Sprinkle. Just go to YouTube, type in Press and Sprinkle, and I'm releasing uh, loads of content there. So yeah, go check it out. Subscribe to my channel. Okay, without further ado, let's get to know the one and only, the apologist, the sharp thinker, and amazing speaker, the one and only Lisa Fields. Okay, hey friends, I'm here with my friend Lisa Fields. Uh, Lisa is a Christian apologist, a student of the Bible, uh, daughter of a pastor. Um, Lisa has her master's degree from Liberty University, uh, has an undergraduate degree. I forget where your undergraduate degree is at. I've got your bio here. Oh, North Florida, University of North Florida with a bachelor's in uh, communications and religion religious studies. And I, I met Lisa a few years ago. You had me on your podcast, I think, to talk about some stuff. And I was like, dang, this girl's like asking super great, hard questions. She's like a student of the word and a true, like, I would say an up and coming apologist. I, I think whenever I think of a Christian apologist, I think of kind of older people, you know, and here's a young kind of rock star who is out to defend the faith and help others defend the faith. Lisa, thanks so much for being on my podcast and YouTube channel. Thank you for having me, Preston. I'm excited to be here. Okay. So I, I in this episode, I mean, we're filming here. What is it? What's July? Was it June 30th? How do you know what date it is? June 30th. Yes, um, it is June 30th. So we're in the mid. If someone's watching this like two years from now, if the world's still around, um, <laughs> <laughs> I just want you to know we're living in some, crazy times there's so many things coming at us um all the way from a global pandemic uh, a lot of the racial tensions are erupting which is causing a lot of other societal things happening um some are uh a little worrying and some are kind of exciting some changes happening so you know i i just want to have lisa lisa i just want to have you just just help us understand our cultural moment now is the best way I can put it. And I want to begin, I titled this black lives matter and the gospel. Cause I know more than ever this idea of black lives matter as a movement and also as like, as a, as a, as a entity, um, but also just as a, a cultural theme um, is something that's on a lot of people's minds. I know a lot of Christians are processing this and I know it can cause a lot of strife and confusion, Let's just begin there. Uh, help! I'm just going to say Black Lives Matter in the gospel. Lisa, what do you think about that? Help us understand that. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I would amen completely <laughs> Black Lives Matter. <laughs> um, I think uh, Black people are made in the image of God, uh, just like all humanity is made in the image of God. And I think that affirms it, like Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. And specifically, I think it's important to say Black Lives Matter to God. Um, we're living in a cultural moment, especially what I do, Christian apologetics tailored specifically to uh, equipping and engaging the African-American context, where a lot of um, African-Americans struggle with Christianity. And one Mm. of the reasons they struggle with it is because they feel like it's a white man's religion. Mm. And so I think it's helpful to affirm 
that not only do Black Lives Matter in general, but Black Lives Matter also to God. Mm. Many Black people feel unprotected um, and not just unprotected by the nation or police, they feel unprotected by God. And so I think it's important not only just to affirm that Black Lives Matter, but Black Lives Matter to God, so much so that the good news, the gospel tells us that he came and died for humanity. And so I think that's important. What about, okay, so I'm going to start already with some, with some just hard (laughs) things. If I, just some phrase might even upset people. Um, and I think you and I are going to be on the same page with this one, but I'm going to throw it out there. What, what's what's wrong with, or is there something wrong with somebody saying all lives matter? Like, what, what what is it about responding to Black Lives Matter with all lives matter that you could see either helpful or troubling? I'm going to try to play neutral here. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we just had a Father's Day just recently passed. And I think when you say happy Father's Day, um, the reaction is not to say happy mother's day Uh, (laughs) because we know that we're honoring fathers at this moment. Okay. Uh, And I think in the same sense, it's true when it says black lives matter, it's like in historically black lives hasn't mattered in America, right? Mm -hmm. You see black lives being constitutionally sanctioned as three fifths of a person. Uh, You see uh, people stealing us from our land Um, and bringing us over here for free labor. Um, And so historically in America, Black lives haven't mattered um, to the majority culture. And I think it's important to affirm, hey, in the midst of this racial unrest, in the midst of police um, killing um, people in the street, in the midst of historically Black people being lynched without their uh, murderers being prosecuted because they weren't thought of as human. It's important to humanize black and brown bodies to the majority culture, which is uh, historically dehumanized them and to affirm that, Hey, black lives matter. Historically majority culture lives have always mattered in this country. Um, but black lives have not. Okay. No, that's, that's one of the most succinct ways I've heard it expressed and i would uh just for the ray i i just completely agree with that there, there was somebody sent a uh, a meme <laughs> i mean it's fun it was funny and it drove home the point as a meme of i don't know if you've seen this uh, it was from sky jatani um and uh it showed a picture of a guy a house is burning down and there's a whole row of other houses that are just sitting there and uh <laughs> and there, you hear a cry from help coming from the burning house help and then there's a guy stand out front saying, all houses matter, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was, uh, yeah, I thought it kind of drove home the point you just made. So, um, yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of other memes out there mocking that. Fr- it, it, yeah, um, well, okay. What about the Black Lives Matter as, as, a, as a more concrete movement? I've, I've heard um, some people express some concerns, people who would say, no, I absolutely agree. Black Lives Matter. And, and I would even agree with what you said, Lisa. But there is some things within the movement that I just can't get on board with. Would you say there are some things with the specific movement that you find problematic or do you find it to be maybe misunderstood or how would you respond to that? Yeah, I think every movement has problematic entities, uh, evangelicalism uh, being one. What? No, we're perfect, Lisa. (laughs) Um, America as a whole being another Um, But I also think it's important to note that anything that 
uh, one can affirm can be used for other things. So, uh, Preston, you deal a lot with sexuality. Mm -hmm. So think about the rainbow, Mm -hmm. right? And what it signifies uh, as a God promise to Mm -hmm. Noah that he will never destroy the earth. Yeah. With uh with the flood again, right? Yeah. But what does the rainbow symbolize now mm-hmm. in America? Well, just uh, in the world, the rainbow yeah. is a a symbol of the LGBTQIA mm-hmm. plus community, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't say when we preach the rainbow, we don't uh say we're not going to talk about the God's promise or throw the rainbow away because mm-hmm. we don't like the way another community uses it. Okay. Uh, we can still affirm yeah. that it's a divine promise. Am I, yeah. are you tracking with me? That's good. No, that's a great analogy. Um, you're two for two now. <laughs> 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 that's so I super important that way that we not think we have to throw something away because yeah. we don't like the way another community uses it. Okay. Um, I think we can still affirm that. And I think if we use the principle of we can't support Black Lives Matter because we don't agree with every tenet, then we're going to have really trouble engaging people who feel that same way about our, our Christian yeah. denominations. Yeah, I found um, in my own and I, and, and I have not spent a lot of time uh, following everything that the BLM movement is, is saying Um and I would say most of the time I'm like, man, that's a legit point. Totally on board. Um, there's other times where I'm like, Ooh, yeah, I don't know if I would be on, on board with that. Um, uh, but when I, when I understand, I don't know, for me in, in, this, in the work I do with sexuality, it's like, sometimes I can maybe disagree with a point being made, but I still, I should still understand the underlying thing that has led to making that point. Doesn't mean I still agree with it, but I'm like, wow, that's, that's, helpful to understand that for instance i, I saw um one uh blm leader from new york on a i think it was a fox news interview with a with a white lady it was really helpful because she was asking you know she asked some good questions and he made he <laughs> he gave some great responses you know she was kind of uh ask a question that was more critical in spirit of using violence to achieve your ends um and he's like well wait a minute what do you think the revolutionary war was <laughs> like your whole kind con- our whole country was founded on the kind of using violence to achieve freedom, you know, <laughs> and there's every parallel is going to fall down. But I was like, that's a great point, you know, like, so yeah. I, don't know, I, 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 I found it helpful in my own heart. So even if I come across something on face value seems a little bit like, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's as a Christian, I don't think using violence to achieve your end at the same time, even the Christianity's got a lot of skeletons in our closet by doing that. So let's be careful when we accuse others. Um, is there anything specifically? I know there's some like Marxist kind of themes that people have pointed to with the Black Lives Matter movement. Or is there, is there anything in particular where you're like, you know what, I, I, I would probably not be on board with this thing or I don't know if that's fair to ask. Or... Um, so I think when I think of Black Lives Matter, I think that most white evangelicals assume that when people are saying Black Lives Matter, they are even thinking about the movement, the organization. I think that's important to note. Like the organization is completely disconnected from the phrase in many people's minds. 
some people don't even know there's an organization called Black Lives Matter that are black. You know what I'm saying? So it's like they That's have completed it yeah. to think, oh, these people, everybody affirms it. And it's like most people haven't read the tenets. They don't <laughs> even know the founders. Like they just affirm the phrase. Ah, and so okay. I think because there's this tendency to be suspicious yeah. of, of, of things that black people are doing just for majority culture a lot of times. Yeah. There's this detached from understanding, like people literally, black people are just saying Black Lives Matter. Yeah. They don't even. Some people don't even know about the organization or know that the organization exists, and they have like these statements. You know, yeah. I would think that most black people that are saying Black Lives Matter aren't even thinking about the organization Black Lives Matter. That's super and, helpful because I, I do see. And again, I'm not surveying everybody, or whatever. But in my experience, my anecdotal experience, I do see some, and I'll just say, you know, people who are white who may may be critical of the movement, uh, they typically just race to the movement. And I think what you said there, that I, I, I can in my head, there are statements I'm, I'm seeing in my mind, thinking, man, I don't think that person even would understand your point or, or didn't realize your point. And I, you said something in passing, you know, suspicion, and I guess that's that's a that's a huge problem man like for any and especially i will say a anybody in a majority culture to be suspicious whenever a minority culture is doing something is stirring something making us uncomfortable saying things we haven't heard before when we lead with suspicion that's just a bad place to lead from rather than leading from a place of understanding especially as a christian um, and as an apologist, I'm sure, you know, <laughs> if, yeah. you're, if you're dialoguing with somebody or, and you're trying to help them to see another point of view, if you lead with suspicion, they're probably not going to be in a good place to <laughs> consider your yeah. point. Um, what, what about you? So you're, you live in, uh, is it Jacksonville, Florida? Yeah. So let's talk about the toppling of s- these monuments. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it, so I guess there's a spectrum of the kinds of monuments that are being toppled. You have on the one hand, you know confederate leaders <laughs> mm-hmm. um on the other hand you had like i think they took down like at least ulysses s grant and christopher columbus and some things and it's like man that's that's well christopher columbus okay that, that, that's that's an interesting one but ulysses s grant was for he was fighting against slavery wasn't he or is there more to <laughs> him than or maybe people were just annoyed at all these white men kind of you know hovering over us what, what are your thoughts on on the toppling of statues and these kind of symbols that are relics of a kind of a dark past. Mm-hmm. So I think as Christians, we should realize that symbols are important, right? Mm-hmm. We have a Bible that is full of symbolism um, in regard. And it's, and we see throughout the old Testament, God has a really big problem with, um, with statues, mm-hmm. uh, as you would say, or idols, um, astropoles. Yeah. Uh, in fact, when Josiah recovered um, the law in the temple, which is, he found it where it was supposed to be um, <laughs> in God's temple, he um, he re- he realized that they had to get rid of all the idols. Um, and so, because he understood that they meant something, they could mm-hmm. repent, but there was symbolism that would remind people of their idolatry. And in the same way, I know we're not living in a theocracy, so it's not 
mm-hmm. necessarily transferable in all ways. But I think it does, it's a principle there that these images matter. These, the, these images are important for how we see God and how we see other people. And um, one of the reasons I think that's helpful, because these people, Confederate, um, when we think of Confederate statues, we think of idols to white supremacy mm. or idols to uh, to people who thought black people were less than human. Wow. And I think it's important that we we think about like how that may damage someone else. I read, I saw a meme that was helpful. It says, if somebody stole your family member, raped them, Mm -hmm. would you want a statue? Where would you want us to put that statue? (laughs) Would you say you You felt like this for a while? Like before, before, I mean, it was a few years ago when the statue conversation started to come up, but has this been like, would you say most black people, especially in the South, have felt like this? ever since i mean for decades i mean that these statues are just kind of a little bit irritating so i think it is a i think some people just ignore it so Mm -hmm. i don't want to say it is a uh a majority perspective but i think the younger gen z and millennial group are like nah this gotta come down we want to remove everything that uh that reminds us of slavery especially knowing that they were built after reconstruction to kind of after when black people started to kind of get some headway after after being um free from slavery Mm -hmm. that they put these up as to kind of remind people like of confederate um oppression, if I could say that. Um, So it was a symbol of white supremacy. And I don't think people realize that, that they were honoring these people to kind of try to remind people, black people of their place in society. So the whole motivation of the original building of them was, is problematic. It's not like, Hey, we're not saying this guy was great. He's kind of a jerk, um, but we're going to commemorate just history as it is. That wasn't really the motive. It was like, now we want to, we want to, Remind people that the South could rise again, <laughs> you know, kind of, that's, that's, that's the name of a country song, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's, I wow. think that's it. That's... Mm. Yeah. Um, you've traveled around speaking and stuff. Uh, do you see the race conversation kind of different from place to place? I mean, so I, I didn't grow up in the South. I grew up in California and, and it, it was very different. Even people I know that were raised in the South and then they've lived in California, like, man, you guys, this is nothing like what I grew up with, you know, like in a good way, like, like the West coast typically is more chill. There is absolutely racism, but it's more ice. It's more like unusual. It's not so like in the air as, as much. Um, have you noticed, I mean, in the South and in Florida in particular, is it still very tense? I mean, segregated you feel like yeah 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 so i it is very segregated in in florida jacksonville in particular um i i grew up black middle class but i grew up in a black middle class neighborhood so it i rarely saw white people at all um (laughs) growing up and i didn't um that was just my environment and then when i went my church was all black Mm -hmm. um my schools were mostly black. I mean, the first interaction I had like with a white person 
on the regular. I mean, high school somewhat um, and middle school because I went to a college preparatory middle okay. school and high school uh, for ninth grade. And then I went to my um, local high school. Um, so I was interacting, but like we were very clicked up. So the black people home with the black people, white people home with white people is very rare um, that 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 we were engaging. College was the first time I think my college. I had two white roommates uh, my first my freshman year of college. So that was a very interesting experience. Um, I love this. But they were they were they were cool. Um, it wasn't until I went to Liberty that I was like, white evangelicalism is different. Like, yeah. this is really, really interesting. Like, it was like, it was like microaggressions of like, and like some overt racism in, in comments. Wow. And it was funny because I think what was more shocking to me was that it was coming from the people that were my age, my professors, I, I can't say that I experienced that any overt like discomfort in talking to them. If I talked to them about something and they brought up something that I thought was problematic, I could address them and we could have like I'm still cool with them to this day. I talked mm-hmm. to them, um, but it was the younger people that I felt like were more ignorant, which wow. was very interesting. T- I want to. I want to. Can you just keep going? So, so I have so many questions. <laughs> um, you, you, the the microaggression, the, the the microaggressions from white evangelicalism. Can you just unpack that? Even get and and look. There, there's not least there's nothing you can say to it. I'm unoffendable <laughs> by you. Okay, so you can you can be honest. Whatever. Share your heart. Share your feelings. Not everything's cool. Um, but I I just want to understand. Like what 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 is it about a white evangelical context that would be triggering i I imagine there's probably some unintentional things people do that they don't even realize they're doing and i would love to know what those are (laughs) yeah like just things i think generalizations they have about black people so like i think one time somebody asked me did i know my father oh my gosh (laughs) um like oh this is they were like talking about weave and they were like lisa you would probably know and i was like actually i i've never worn weave um, I think I had some for like prom one time, but that was it. Um, <laughs> so I actually don't know. Um, just assuming things. Mm-hmm. I, I joked one time and said, um, I'm going to get a shirt made just for when I go in evangelical spaces that says, I know my dad, I didn't grow up in poverty. Um, <laughs> I don't wear weeds. <laughs> um, just so yeah. I can answer all the questions that I'm asked or just yeah. assume like, Oh, you know, like I I was telling somebody I did apologetics for the African-American context. And then they randomly started talking about single mothers. And I was like, why are we even why are we even why do we transition there? Like, (laughs) how do we how do we get there? Like they have no concept. Many of them have no concept of apologetics in black spaces outside of racial reconciliation or outside of like inner city and, and poverty. Um, and so it, those are the types of things that I found problematic. And it's very interesting that I, my college roommates, I mean, they had some things about like, w- like how black people do their hair, but they were much more, and they were unbelievers. They were oh. much, they raised conversations 
way better and were much more sensitive than conservative evangelicals. And I found that unbelievers tend to deal better sometimes than conservative white evangelicals deal with engaging on race. Now that's, that's not shocking. I mean, unfortunately that you know, it's funny is I, so I was raised as in a, in a poor neighborhood, lower middle, lower class, more, uh, single mom (laughs) (laughs) in largely Hispanic neighborhood. Um, I was a poor white kid. Um, and, uh, so you're raised middle-class, both parents. And so this is, this is a, so, so growing up in a largely black context, what was your perception of maybe white people growing up when you were like, maybe didn't know hardly any, like, what was your assumptions? <laughs> so I didn't really, it's funny. Cause I really didn't think about white people at all. Okay. Like it was, <laughs> it was just kind of like, out of sight, out of mind. Um, like, I mean, white people exist, but I think, for me, it I didn't have a sense that they were any white people were any better. Okay. Like so growing up in a middle class black neighborhood, I always saw black people with stuff. I always mm-hmm. was around educated black people. So it's like, okay, like maybe there's some super rich white people, but there's also rich mm-hmm. black people. So to me, it was really no difference. I think when I got to so the funny enough the high school that I went to from 10th grade to 12th grade was mostly black middle class and white lower class. (laughs) (laughs) Keep going, Lisa. Keep going. (laughs) I'm just going to listen. This is awesome. (laughs) So in a sense, it was just like, Oh, like I didn't see like white people as better. Um, Mm -hmm. So it was just, it was a very different experience, I think, that I grew up in than others. Yeah. So it's like, you know, su- suburbs, um, living in the uh, co- community, and then like there's, um, our school is like in the white lower class neighborhood, which has actually been uh, more so, I guess, I don't think that's gentrification, but <laughs> it was like trailer parks all around. And so it was just a very interesting vibe so it's, it's like has it been has it been gentrified by the hipster black community now opening <laughs> <laughs> not it's a mix it's a mix of uh black and white middle okay. class that have yeah. like bought up all the trailer parks and created subdivisions but <laughs> um hey real quick I forgot to mention your organization. I th- oh, I think I might have mentioned it before but you mentioned apologetics kind of what you do. I just want to briefly from an audience, the Jude Three Project. I think that's the website, right? If you yeah. use Google Jude Three Project, JudeThreeProject.org. So you're you're doing amazing work, specifically within the Black Christian community with apologetics, biblical literacy, um, I, and I. This is gonna. I, I I've been a fan for a while. I I I think so, some people. I just if I could speak for some people out of maybe some ignorance, they're like, wow, I didn't know that was a. I didn't know that was a thing. Like, you know, like I didn't think black people did apologetics, you know? Um, and, and I, I'm, I'm looking at the people, the voices you're able to collaborate with. I mean, just so my audience knows that there's a whole world outside of white evangelicalism <laughs> of biblically literate, theologically powerful black voices out there. Probably many names. And this is, this is a problem, Lisa, but names that a lot of people never even heard of, um, and these are, yeah, anyway, go go to the website and check it out. And there's just some 
some great resources there. Are you st- so you're still doing Jude three? Is this still? Are you still full steam ahead? Things are going yeah. great, or full, full steam ahead, full steam ahead. You just had 24/7. a recent. You just had a recent comp something in Chicago. Was it? What was that called? The um. So that was courageous conversation. That's our national conference. We have uh, we had our first one in Chicago September. It was a Labor Day of twenty nine no twenty eighteen. Then we had one in Atlanta, twenty nineteen. How'd that go? It went great. It was uh, we bring together leading scholars, black scholars yeah. from conservative and progressive backgrounds to okay. talk about easy subjects like sexuality, justice, the authority of scripture. Uh, <laughs> you know, nothing too hard. Just <laughs> how did that go? Sexuality conversation. It went, it went really well. I think it really had to be the Holy Spirit uh, to keep the civility of the moment. Yeah. Um, but it was very, very civil. Okay. And I praise God for that. A yeah. lot of prayer went into like <laughs> the civility, but I think setting it up where I was very intentional about like it was going to be set up with kind of like living room style. Yeah. Um, and then everybody kind of had to face each other. So, you know, an apologetics debate style is you're facing the audience and you're arguing your point and it's easy to dehumanize somebody mm. you don't have to look at. And so I think one of the ways in which we could create helpful discourse amongst people who think differently is have them actually engage each other face to face. Yeah. Gosh, that's great. Wow. I, I wonder, and I don't know, cause I, I haven't, yeah, I would have loved to experience that. Um, I wonder if just thinking out loud here, correct me if I'm wrong. If, if the commonality of the black minority experience within America gave some common ground across the theological divide that two white people progressive and a conservative wouldn't have in common do you think that that helped at all or is that is that an accurate way to i don't know yeah i think that that helped because i think everybody's going to be unified around the the whole aspect of justice yeah um and how that works its way in in black people works its way out in black america uh-huh. uh but there was very some very stark differences and some very um, uh, interesting moments where you could see the tension, but people mm-hmm. were still respectful. Okay, especially when you got to the sexuality conversation. Yeah, especially the authority of scripture conversation because it's that has so many implications, right? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, I wish I could have been there. <laughs> yeah, they're they're all on YouTube. So, all oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, I'll check it out. Um. Okay, let, let's come back to our cultural moment now. And I would love to know from you, um, what would you love to see from uh, white evangelical leaders in this cultural moment, specifically with the racial tens- tensions? What should, I mean, me and many others, what should we be doing right now? Um, I've been doing a lot more listening than speaking right now, just because I'm trying to get my mind around everything going on. And I don't want to, I, I, I think sometimes we feel with social media, we need to say something you know, something comes out and we need to say something like, I don't know. I think let's just, I don't know. I I like to, to, I'm a, I'm a slow processor thinker and I don't like to speak ahead of where my mind and heart is anyway. So, but I want to hear from you. What, what, what do you think? What would be your advice to me and many others like me right now? So I've been saying this thing. I don't know if you've seen it on social, but I love alliteration. So, um, a a lot of my points are, are alliterated, uh, many times, uh, but I've been saying, listen, lament, legislate listen, lament, legislate. And I think that's helpful because, you know, 
I think as an apologist, I think one of the greatest apologetic tools is listening. Um, it is a necessary thing because oftentimes we as Christians aren't good listeners. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure you get this with trying to help people engage the LGBTQ community. It's like, just listen, like you don't have to go in with all your objections. You don't have to go in like thinking, oh, I got to tell you why I don't agree with this point. Like, listen. And I think when you listen, you'll, you'll talk to somebody and you'll say, just like the point I made earlier, you're like, well, I can't get on with the Black Lives Matter movement. And then when you're talking to most Black people, you realize, they'll be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> and they won't even know what you're even, like, you've researched it way beyond what they even are aware of. They're simply making the point Black Lives Matter. Like, okay. that's it. That that was where it started and stopped with them. They didn't go any further. And, but you won't get that by assuming. You get that by listening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then once you listen, you can find out, like, what's, what's the data. Then you can do your own research. A part of listening is taking what they've given you and then doing your own research, looking at, I mean, the criminal justice records and the disparity historically. Like, there are many studies on it. Um, from from universities, and you can do your own research and gather your own data. Data. Um, a, a good example of this: Phil Vischer, Veggie Tales, just did an excellent it, presentation. Powerful, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of <laughs> the disparities of wealth and um, also the disparity of um, the criminal justice, yeah. and so like he he actively did research. And so obviously the data is out there. So mm -hmm. part of listening is also researching what you've heard. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think, you know, in order for someone to really, I think it to penetrate their hearts, they have to take it and study it for themselves. Like those in Berea. Mm -hmm. uh, they mm -hmm. took what Paul said and they went back and said, that's good, Paul. I'm going to study this for myself. And then I'll say, oh, okay. What you told me was correct. And I think that's being a good steward of what you heard is yeah. to go back and research it um, and not listening to talking heads and not saying, oh, I found a black person that agrees with my mm -hmm. my perspective, because many white evangelicals will look over the 50 million black people that are saying <laughs> thing and find one black person that says something different and being like, that's it. You agree with me. And it's like <laughs> the Candace you know Owens. And... <laughs> yeah. You know, that black person doesn't really have relationships with the black community to move the needle forward. So you're yeah. just you're picking someone that doesn't have any weight in our community right. to speak for our community. This can. So I'm curious about that. Some of the black conservatives. Um, I mean, Candace is one that really stands out. Um, there's a black community where they typically not find her voice very helpful. I mean, she, she can be pretty. Whether you agree or not with her, she can be pretty kind of shrill just in her rhetoric. Um, yeah, what do you guys think? Of, what do you think of her? <laughs> yeah, the, it, almost I, I would say almost none of the black community would affirm. <laughs> with um, and I think uh, what's helpful, I always tell people this: you should know the influence that a person carries by the audience that they bring. Okay. And so if you invite a black person or if you see a black person and their audience is all white, that means they probably don't have 
hmm. influence in the black community. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you're 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 not really helping your point get across okay. um, to a community that they don't have an audience for. If yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. Though there's one that I for a while I was uh, reading some stuff on Thomas Sowell. Sowell. Mm-hmm. I, I found him. I mean, obviously he's kind of in that black conservative camp, but he's a he's a scholar among scholars this guy's like brilliant um and i found his voice to be i mean whether i agree or not with some of the things he said just really thoughtful and thought out and less kind of enraging like uh I, candace owen just i feel like she again whether you agree or disagree with her points they seem to be just trying to provoke or try i don't know they seem too political quite honestly <laughs> as someone yeah. who's i'm not very partisan i just get nervous when anybody's so hyper political but um or partisan, hyperpartisan. Um, and the um, the other two, I forgot. I didn't explain the other two, but listen, then limiting. Once you've learned this stuff, um, being able to empathize and repent for your part in it, and then seek in ways legislate is really a more about action. What are some things we could do rally around tangible for criminal justice reform? What what privileges do you have that you may have to to utilize to push the agenda of the marginalized forward? Um, And people don't like that word legislate in white evangelicalism uh, because they say it's about heart changing. And Martin Luther King said something that I think was powerful and potent, potent for this moment. The law can't make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me. And that's important. (laughs) (laughs) I have that. We're not looking for white people to love us necessarily, but we want them to stop killing us. (laughs) And so that's that's what the legislation will provide. I've listened to that sermon by MLK many times. um, And that line that you just quoted has stood out. It's been branded because I can, I can lean towards that kind of ah politics, you know, whatever. And people have helped me understand that um, I do carry a certain level. And I know this is another debated phrase. So don't please don't read into it. My audience, but like I do carry a certain level of privilege um, Mm -hmm. that in many contexts would allow me to have the freedom to not care about legislation because I don't have, Mm -hmm historic laws that you know were lynching me in Times square um can you uh oh there's another question i want um oh criminal justice reform can you speak unpack that a little bit if somebody's like i don't know what that means unpack uh your concerns there yeah, yeah so criminal justice reform is needed in our country because there's such a um uh a gap between how black people are treated in the criminal justice system and white people are treated in the criminal justice system. I'll just use like one of the things that I think is most clear, most helpful, the, the, um, the, the time that you get for crack cocaine and the time you would get for cocaine and cocaine usually is known as the, a, a drug that white people use. Crack is known as a drug that black people use. <laughs> and there was a huge time difference between cocaine huh. possession and crack possession. Huh. Um, so that's one kind of um, that created a gap um, in how black people were prosecuted and white people were prosecuted. And so we need reform that, hey, lets us have equal um, there's an equal standard as mm-hmm. far as how black and 
brown people and white people are treated in the criminal justice system, how they're sentenced, um, how they're assumed guilty. Um, and there's a history of this, like from slavery until now, on assuming black guilt, um, guilty mm-hmm. um, before the trial because one is black. There's an assumption um, that black people are guilty. And mm-hmm. so that's how they're treated. That racial bias plays out in how jurors treat them mm-hmm. and how they're sentenced. And so I think that's important for us to know so we could create um, legislation that will help um, kind of mitigate this um, discrepancy. Yeah. That's super helpful. So um, I've, heard, I've heard that for a while now that the crack and cocaine difference is that along racial lines or is it along like poverty line? like for instance if a white dude was busted for crack would he get a lesser sentence than a black person busted for crack or, or you know you're raised more middle class black neighbor like if a upper middle class black person was on cocaine not crack would they really would they get punished typically or sometimes harsher than a white person on the same substance i can't say all the time just because yeah. I don't have sure. the data in front of me. But I do think that um, the data will point to that even Black people in a higher class okay. um, can receive more uh, more time than someone white lower class. Now, sometimes it is a class thing. So okay. it's class and race plays into to the dynamics and your representation and uh, your lawyer. But Sometimes how much your your public defender fights for you may be, mm-hmm. if they have racial bias, it may be um, contingent upon that as well. They might fight harder for a white person than they do mm-hmm. a black person. How do you change that? Because I, I would imagine, like you mentioned the jury, you, it might be just blatant racist. Like the guy pulls up to the courthouse with the Confederate flag in the back of his pickup truck. Like you got to, well, I don't know. I feel like it wouldn't, if you're blatantly racist, it, it, it'd be hard to get on a jury, right? I mean, it seems like that. Yeah, I'm sure they might come out in the jury. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but I think what you're talking about is more just... Uh, it, um, the ideology. Yeah, just that. Uh, uh, what's the word? Yeah. I'm looking for a word. Uh, unintentional or um, implicit racism. Or, yeah, 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 yeah. That it's more that, that they may not even really realize it, but they're just have been kind of slowly brainwashed a little bit to say to be more likely to convict a black person than a white person. How how do you change? Like, how do you change that? That's overwhelming. So I think that's why it has to be a multi-pronged approach. That's why I say listen and lament. Cause I think those two help shift the racial bias mm. in, in, in people to understand like the history and then understand like how you might've played a part in perpetuating some of these negative stereotypes and then you can move to the legislation. But I think if you if there's no listening and lamenting, legislation alone won't solve it. Okay. I think it has to be a comprehensive approach. Okay, that's helpful. Uh, one more, I guess, area I wanted to talk into, and I'll, I'll let you go. I'm sure you got many things to do. Uh, um, the church, um, what would you like to see from the broad and, I, and when i say church i mean to say broader evangelical church black and white um or you know people of color people of majority status um what can the church do as a community in the wake of all the upheaval right now what could we what role do we play apart from the listen lament legislate i think one of the most helpful things that the church could do 
is um, repent of his shortcomings Mm -hmm. as a whole. Uh, I think that is powerful to see that kind of repentance play out because it, it, it shows like that you're aware of what's going on to a degree. And I mean, we all have blind spots, but I think that awareness helps bring healing. Okay. Um, I think the church has to repent of it, the ways it's played into this. So you see this with like Southern Baptist convention, that it was birthed out of mm-hmm. the idea that we want to take the missionaries money that own slaves, you know, um, their racial bias, um, not letting black people in some of their schools, um, only letting black people in some of their schools because it was law, not because mm. they thought that black people were were um, as good of, or they had dehumanized them in a way where it was like, well, you're in our minds, you're still three fifths. So the government has to force us to to integrate, not mm-hmm. the God that we serve. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think repenting of that history or even being aware, because what I see when I'm ministering to black students on college campuses is many of them don't want anything to do with Christianity because of white evangelicals. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, their lack of um, critique of the president, like no matter where you land on each, any political party, the inability to critique either side that you're a part of shows a lack of integrity on your part. Okay. And so I think people want to see that people want to see repentance. People want to see people standing up to their particular groups and speaking truth to power. So whether you're a Democrat speaking truth to power on issues of, 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 um, of, Maybe like pro-life, yeah. you know, saying, hey, like, I I believe that this is not a fetus. This is a human being, <laughs> you know, speaking truth to power in that and then speaking truth to power as it relates to racism in the party, as it relates to not caring for the poor and marginalized, like whatever side you land, just be a truth teller in that space. And so I think that that's needed. What, what, thank you for that. Um, what are your thoughts on like multi-ethnic? churches um do you think that that is something that we need much more of um like not assimilation where sure people of color are welcome to join our white evangelical culture (laughs) as long (laughs) as you as long as you're not too black you know is how some of my white friends wouldn't say it but it's kind of like yeah you can lead worship but just make sure you're you know don't be getting all gospel on me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Our white people can't keep up. But like, like, like a, a multi-ethnic churches that actually embrace and promote and celebrate genuine multi-ethnicity from the leadership down. Um, I don't know. I guess I'm showing my hand. I think that that, I think the church from my, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. See if I'm, mm-hmm. it seems like the church loses credibility to speak into our cultural moment when we as a church can't, aren't really doing a good job at it. But is that, I don't know, maybe I'm missing something. (laughs) So I think multi-ethnic church is fine. Um, I don't think every church will be multi-ethnic or should be multi-ethnic. One of the reasons I say that is because I think your church should reflect your community. And if you're in West Virginia uh, in the foothills with all white people, you're not going to be (laughs) multi-ethnic. Or because your 
people usually go to church based on proximity now. How far they have to drive. Yeah. <laughs> they're like they're not going to cross town just to worship multi in multi ethnic spaces. Mm-hmm. Some people do, but most of the people, it's just not realistic. I think that the posture you have towards people outside of your race is more helpful because your church can be multi-ethnic and you can still be racist. Um, So I think it's important that you use, that you're aware of your privilege, aware of your status in society and steward that um, the best way you can. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you're not, if you're a majority led church and you can't be multi-ethnic because it's just like you're in an affluent white neighborhood in Southern California Mm -hmm. and there's maybe only two black people in your neighborhood or your community it's not going to be multi-ethnic. Right. So that's not a hill that which I think one needs to try to die on in that space. But what ways can I steward this affluence to help those on the margins? I think it's a better question than how can we make this space multi-ethnic? And I think that's a more attainable um, goal. That's, that's great word. I, yeah, I had a, this is a long time ago at church. I think it was outside of St. Louis is in a white upper middle-class neighborhood. And it was a very white church, very, very comfortable church, very affluent church, but they had, they did have a justice mindset or heart. They were just like, what do we do here? You know, what they ended up doing is partnering with, I think one or two urban churches um, and just said, Hey, whatever you guys need, you guys are doing the work. We're not going to do it for you. We can't do it for you, but we want to be here as a resource to help you with whatever you guys need. It was something like that. Maybe, maybe, so maybe the actual local church isn't multi-ethnic for various reasons, but they're partnering with other churches that, you know, across racial lines? Yeah, I think that's helpful. I think one of the ways people could, more affluent churches can help organizations on the margins. Like, so me, I run a minority-led organization, mm-hmm. um, I, obviously because I'm a minority. <laughs> um, my <laughs> nonprofit is. And many apologetics organizations that exist had a head start. So they mm-hmm. had, uh, you know, maybe a seed of a few uh, hundred thousand dollars um, or, you know, 50,000. I started with zero. And when I started a white older CEO, because you you understand this, apologetics is more older white men that run apologetic space (laughs) outside of Ravi. Uh, But um, he told me he was like, and he wasn't in apologetics. He was the CEO of another larger Christian um, organization. He said, Lisa, you're going to struggle and it's going to be nearly impossible for you to do do this work for three reasons. You're black, you're a woman and you're young. And apologetic (laughs) is old white man. (laughs) And he wasn't like he's he was an old white man. He wasn't being rude. He was being frank. Yeah. And even though it was a very discouraging conversation, he I don't think he said that with the intent of harming of more so than to make me aware of the what I was stepping into. Okay. And so it is very, very difficult as a black young single woman to raise support. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think in that way, when you see organizations like mine, that you, if you're a fluent white organization and say, you know what, I can't do the work Lisa is doing or others, yeah. but I have money and resources that you, you give and help help the work of people who are doing it on the ground as a means of stewarding your privilege to help others. All right. So I'm going to call my audience right now. I'm going to put uh, Lisa's info in the show notes. Y'all need to support her ministry. Okay. <laughs> Look, I, if anybody's watching this and you trust me, maybe you don't, maybe you haven't heard of Lisa. 
Um, I've been following Lisa for a long time. She's been a friend and her ministry is absolutely legit, theologically sound in depth. I mean, I cannot more highly applaud the work you're doing work that I can't do. Many others can't do for various reasons and you're just killing it. So go and support 10 bucks a month, 25 bucks a month, hundred dollars a month, $10,000 check. (laughs) (laughs) Let's, let's help Lisa keep doing what she's doing because she's doing amazing, amazing work. Lisa, I can't thank you enough for your time and for your help. And I've got a bunch of notes here and, and truly I think I thank you for leading us in this, in this time and for really speaking truth into my life and, and many others. So thank you for giving up your morning. Thank you so much, Preston. You were like, I think our second or third guest ever <laughs> on G3. And then you came, you talked about sexuality. You came back and talked about hell. Which, <laughs> I mean, I can't, I, I was like, let me get Preston for the easiest topics I have. <laughs> sexuality and hell. And, and just, you killed it on both. <laughs> oh, I'll swear. I'm glad I was helpful. Yeah, we should do it again sometime. <laughs> All right. Take care. Thank you. Have a good one.